Open up your Bibles this morning to uh, Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing to walk through uh, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 9 here in just a second. Um, In this uh, Lord's Prayer, this is the famous um, prayer that Jesus gave his disciples uh, as a pattern of praying. It's a very well-known portion of Scripture. And ironically, this prayer is often used in exactly the way Jesus told us not to pray. For earlier in Matthew chapter 6, I'll remind you that Jesus tells us not to pray like the pagans, offering up just empty phrases Uh, empty mantras. Yet unfortunately, this prayer is sometimes used by people like it's some sort of magical mantra instead of understanding that it's a model to guide us. I'll remind you that in chapter 6 of Matthew that Jesus is showing us, his disciples, that we are not to practice our acts of righteousness like prayer and fasting and giving hypocritically. So to help us not pray hypocritically or, or pray meaninglessly, Jesus gives us this prayer to guide us. Chapter 6 of Matthew is, of course, part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples about what life in the kingdom or life under his rule as Lord should look like. It's a life marked by the traits laid out in the Beatitudes, which we saw in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It's a life of influence in this dark and decaying world where he calls us to be salt and light in in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5. It's a life of Faith in Jesus, who is the absolute fulfillment and completion of the Old Testament scriptures, which we read of in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And this is a life marked by our union with Christ, which means we have a desire to obey God's moral law and to obey it, not superficially like the scribes and the Pharisees did, but to obey it from the heart, from a new heart. A heart that now desires to be like our Father, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And of course, we'll never reach that mark of perfection on this side of eternity. But we we strive nonetheless. We work hard because God is at work through his Holy Spirit in us, making us, transforming us to be like Jesus, to image him rightly. So when it comes to acts of righteousness like prayer and giving and and fasting, we, we should have a desire to have an obedience that comes from the heart, that a heart that's been made new and is therefore willing and able to obey. So when we hear Jesus say, pray like this, which is what he says in verse 9, pray then like this, we should sit up and take notice. For we know that if we are true Christians, if we truly love Jesus Christ, then we'll want to obey his commands, including this command, to pray like this. And we know that if we are true Christians, if we truly love Christ, then we have been given the Holy Spirit and we've been enabled by the Holy Spirit to obey his commands, including this one. So let us hear Jesus again this morning as we look at the Lord's Prayer. Let us see and savor what he has to say, what it is that he is teaching us when he commands us to pray like this. So please stand, if you would, as we get ready to read Matthew chapter 6, verses 9. And this time we're going to read through verse 15. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. And this is God's word. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know if those last words from those last two verses sit as heavily upon everyone's heart in here as it has sat upon mine over the past few days. But I pray that by the end of this service that we will have heard what Jesus had to say about requesting that our debts be forgiven and what he has to say about us forgiving others. So, Father, this morning I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to enable our ears to hear, that you'd grant me a mouth to speak this morning. Lord, strike any error from this message. And, Lord, we just pray that you would receive all the glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So as I was thinking this week of an illustration of what is being communicated by Jesus in this fifth petition, and we are looking at the the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is this petition in verse 12. We're focusing in on verse 12, that God forgive, that our Father forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so I was thinking about this, this um, what's being communicated here in this 12th verse. And, and my mind went to that theological masterpiece, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. All right? And I don't know why. That tells you how warped my mind is. I, I'm thinking of illustrations. I go to Indiana Jones. Okay, so in Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, if, if you saw the movie, at the end of the movie, they, they find the Holy Grail, which is what they were searching for. And, and they come out, and, and the knight has warned them not to take that Holy Grail beyond a certain point, or else, you know, things are going to go bad. The whole temple is going to collapse on them and everything else. And, and so Indiana Jones comes out with the Holy Grail. He uses it to save um, James Bond. And uh, he, he uses that to save his father and all that. And then, um, and then they, the, the lady, Elsa, in the movie is greedy and she wants this, this, um, this holy grail. And she walks past the point that the knight told her not to walk past. And sure enough, an earthquake starts and the temple starts to collapse on them. And, and, and then the grail falls to the ground. And then, you know, all, everything's going crazy. It's chaos. There's like an earthquake and the ground's opening up. And now this woman in the movie, Elsa, has been a bad person. She's, she's double-crossed everybody. She's, been, she's, she's the bad guy in the movie, right? Well, the ground opens up and she falls in. It looks like she's about to die. She's hanging by her fingertips there. And Indiana Jones comes over and he offers to rescue her. Reaches his hand down and says, take my hand. He's going to save this person who has been his enemy all movie long. And she reaches to grab his hand. But then out of the corner of her eye, she sees the grail. Okay, she sees the Holy Grail, and she decides she's got to grab, she's got to take that Grail. And she keeps reaching for that, and she keeps reaching for that, and as she reaches for that, she loses grasp on Indiana Jones's hand, and she falls to her death along with the Grail and everything else, and then, you know, so the bad guy's gone. But the whole image there was that she wasn't willing to let go of what she treasured most, even though she was being offered a new chance. Uh, she was being offered forgiveness, if you will, by Indiana Jones and his, his friends that were with him. And she was being offered salvation. She had no way to save herself. But here the good guy in the story reaches down to save her. And instead of holding on to that and receiving that, she wanted to grab hold of something else. She wanted this treasure and it ended up costing her her life. 
That's what's happening here when, when Jesus says and teaches us to pray that we, to our Father, forgive us our debts. And then turns around and says something very controversial, at least controversial to us. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And here's the image I want us to have as we go through this sermon today. If we're not willing to let go of the grudges that we treasure so much. If we're not willing to let go of what others have done to us. And be willing to forgive and to forgive those who have asked for forgiveness. If we're not willing to let go of that, then my friends, we're not going to have open hands to take hold of the forgiveness that God is offering us. If our hands are holding on to grudges, they won't be open to receive the forgiveness that God is offering us in this passage this morning. We would all agree that it's foolishness to try to hold on to to grudges. But too often, as we look at this petition today... Too often we see ourselves holding on to to petty uh, differences, petty grudges that we have with others. If we're going to be in position to have open arms and hands to receive God's pardon, we cannot keep our fists and arms clenched tightly around grudges and an unforgiving disposition towards those who have hurt us. That's what this fifth petition is all about. Now before we dig into this fifth petition here in the Lord's Prayer, I want to remind us where we've come so far. Okay, we are to approach our Heavenly Father with intimate reverence. And that was, we're to approach our Father in prayer, I should say, with intimate reverence. And that's why Jesus teaches us the very first part here to say our Father in heaven. He's teaching us how we approach God in prayer. We are to come to him confidently because of his intimacy with us. He is our Father. But we are to come to him reverently because of his transcendency over us. He is our Father in heaven. And then Jesus gives us six petitions, which I have mentioned every week. Uh, first petition is, is, hallowed be your name, which is a prayer that God's person be magnified. We want God's name to be properly recognized, God's person to be seen as what it is. He is holy, and we desire for the fame of his name to spread. Therefore, we come to the next petition, is that his kingdom come, your kingdom come. We are praying that God's program be fulfilled. We want a greater rule of King Jesus in our lives. We want a greater recognition of King Jesus in our world. And we want the great return of King Jesus to come in all of his power. Thirdly, we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a prayer for God's purposes to be accomplished. We are praying that we and others may actively obey what our Father commands. And that is the revealed will of God, that we would obey what our Father has so clearly commanded us. But also by praying that God's will be done, we are praying that we and others will patiently submit to what our Father decrees. God has a secret will. He decrees things that we don't understand and we can't understand and we can't pry open the, God, the, the, the door of God's secret will. So we are praying that we would submit to God's secret will. Fourthly, we pray the fourth petition is to give us this day our daily bread, which we looked at last week. We are praying for God's provision to be imparted. In this petition, we are renouncing our sinful self-sufficiency. We are recognizing our God for who he is. We are reorienting our desires to align with his desires. And we are resting in our Savior to meet our ultimate need, which is we need more than just physical bread. We need spiritual bread. We need Jesus. And that brings us to the fifth petition, which is today. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. We are praying for God's pardon to be granted. God's pardon to be granted. 
And next week, the last week before I head off on sabbatical, we'll look at the final petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In that, in that we are praying for God's protection to be afforded. Now, I want to break down today's petition, the fifth petition, into two parts. Because there's, there's two clauses in this petition. The first clause, obviously, is forgive us our debts and forgive us our debts. The second clause is as we also for have forgiven our debtors. Now, the word conjoining those two clauses is the word as, and it's a very important word. Matter of fact, I maintain that it's a terrifying word. And we'll get to that soon enough. But first, let's take this first clause and forgive us our debts. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is that in this fifth petition, we are to express our desire to have restored fellowship with our Father. In this fifth petition, we are expressing, or we are supposed to express our desire to have restored fellowship with our Father. The word debts here simply means sins. Forgive us our debts. Now, the word most commonly used in the Greek here, this word debts, it's most commonly used in the Greek to refer to financial um, obligations. But we know that this word debt was also a very common analogy for sin. Now, in Aramaic, which Jesus most certainly spoke when he delivered the Sermon on the Mount, the word debts was the most common word used to refer to sin. We know that Jesus is talking about sin and not finances because in verses 14 through 15, he expounds upon this teaching in the fifth petition uh, and, he, and he refers to uh, trespasses. He refers to us needing to have our trespasses forgiven. So most certainly when Jesus is talking about the forgiveness of debts, he is referring to the forgiveness of sin. And the word debt is a very appropriate word to help us understand exactly what sin is. All men... And all women are born in debt to God. Like a parent who passes on their debt to their children, the debt of Adam's sin was inherited by us. Thus we are born with a sin debt that we cannot pay. It's a universal problem. Notice again, forgive us our debts. The corporate nature of this prayer is again seen for we are acknowledging that we are not only individually debtors, But we all stand in debt to our Father. Mankind stands in debt to our Father. For all have sinned. The debts, the debt is that we have failed to be perfect. The debt is that we have fallen short of God's righteous standard. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we are in debt in the sense that we are owed wrath for our rebellion. Because we have fallen short, because we have sinned, we are owed something. We are owed wrath. We have stored up wrath against ourselves because of our sin. And we have a a double debt problem. You see, we also need something. We need perfect righteousness. So it's kind of like this. uh, I've used this illustration before. Let's say you you have a a credit card. And on that credit card, you have a, a $25 billion debt. And in order to get into heaven, that debt's got to be gone. That credit card's got to be paid off. But that's not your only problem. Not only does your debt have to be gone, it also is going to cost you $25 billion to get into heaven. So you got a double problem. You you need to get rid of the $25 billion that's the debt on the card, and then you need to have $25 billion to get in. Now, of course, that's a kind of a silly illustration because we can't talk about getting into heaven in financial terms. Obviously, it's worth... 
infinitely more than $25 billion. But that's the point. Is our, we are in debt because of our sin. And then also, we lack the righteousness necessary to get into heaven. That is, apart from Christ, we lack the righteousness necessary. Apart from Christ, we have a massive debt problem. So when we come to this fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, we are asking for God to forgive us our sins. Now, this immediately causes some concern in our hearts, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. When you read this prayer or you quote this prayer, does it not cause you a little bit of concern when you say, Lord, forgive us our debts? Isn't there a question that stirs up inside your heart? And the question is this, aren't our sins already forgiven if we're Christians? Aren't our sins already dealt with? If we're kingdom citizens, didn't Jesus pay for them once for all at the cross? Didn't he say it is finished? Why then are we told to daily, and I do believe this model prayer is is a daily prayer. Just as we saw earlier, give us this day our daily bread. I think that that carries out throughout the the whole thing. This is a daily type of prayer. So why are we told to daily ask for forgiveness of sins? It's... I think if we're honest, it causes a little concern in our hearts and in our minds. Now, first, I want to acknowledge that there are some Christians who teach that believers are not to ask for forgiveness of sins. One very well-known and popular teacher, especially popular among college kids, recently said that asking God for forgiveness insults God because God has already forgiven us. That was what he said. Now, I do believe this person is sincerely trying to protect the doctrine of justification and perhaps even the doctrine of the atonement, but he's doing so in a way that denies this passage of Scripture right here. If we're not supposed to ask Jesus daily to forgive us our sins, then then why did Jesus teach us to pray this way? Now, this teacher that I'm referring to, he believes, when confronted about this, he believes that the Sermon on the Mount was only for Jesus' immediate hearers and doesn't apply to post-resurrection believers. Therefore, he would say that Jesus' call to pray for forgiveness was only for those immediate believers in in that time of redemptive history. Now, without having time this morning, because that's a whole nother sermon, without having time this morning to go into that in any deeper way, let me just say that that view is biblically indefensible. I believe that that view is totally indefensible. It's very clear that Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount extend beyond the unique period of time when he was here on the earth. While Jesus did communicate directly to the men and women of the first century, his words have eternal value and meaning to the church today and tomorrow and until he returns. Think about it. Why would Jesus teach his kingdom citizens a prayer without any qualification that was meant only for a brief time? Why would Jesus have created a model prayer that was only valid from approximately 30 to 32 AD? Does that make any sense at all? Let me give you a model prayer. It's only going to last for two years, so do it now. He doesn't, there's no qualifications there. He simply says this is how he expects his children, the children of the Father, he's how he expects them to pray. I hope you can see that such a view that was mentioned by that one teacher is silly. And I believe I, will, and I, I believe and I will confidently teach that the Lord's Prayer stands today as a model of prayer for believers as much as it did in Jesus' day. 
But that still doesn't answer our objection or our question. Hasn't Jesus already forgiven our sins at the cross? Why do we need to continue to ask for sins to be forgiven? Well, first, we must affirm that all true believers, friends, just as we sang earlier, all true believers have been justified before God. Meaning that positionally and judiciously, judicially, I should say, our sins, past, present, and future have been dealt with. Meaning they have been, past tense, forgiven. There is nothing we can add or take away from that truth. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great verse. Have, the past tense is our sins have been dealt with. The present tense is we have peace. That is our salvation. Thankfully, our salvation does not rest on us confessing and asking for sin daily. Aren't you thankful for that? That your salvation does not rest on you asking for forgiveness of sin each day? We'd be in a lot of trouble. And we'd be, be in a whole lot of trouble. For, for if that were the case, we're all headed straight to hell. Because frankly, we aren't even aware of many of the sins that we commit daily. We, we aren't aware of most of the sins we commit daily, I'm sure. But instead, our hope rests, our salvation rests on Christ's finished work alone. On his dealing with our sins on the cross. Our debt paid once for all, Colossians 2 Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, past tense, us all our transgressions. By canceling, past tense, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the debts, boom, nailed to the cross. So let us with great joy affirm these truths. Let us confidently stand on these truths. So what then is going on in the Lord's Prayer? Why ask for forgiveness of something that has already been forgiven? Well, it's because of the fact that until we are with Christ in glory, we will struggle with indwelling sin. Like I said, we sin each day in ways we aren't even aware of. And that ongoing battle against sin leads us to come to our Father and ask forgiveness daily. Not to be justified, but in order to have an open and good fellowship with Him. Let me say that again. We come, we know we sin, we recognize our sin, we have indwelling sin that we're continuing to battle. And we know it, and we struggle with it, and we come to our Father, and we ask Him to forgive us of our sins. Not so that we can be justified. We know we're justified. Matter of fact, the only reason we can call Him Father is that we are justified. So we come to our Father because we want to have open and clear fellowship with Him. So forgive us of these sins, Father. You see, in the Lord's Prayer, we are not coming to God as judge. We are coming to him as father. He's already our father. We've already been born again, brought into his family. This daily prayer for sins to be forgiven is not a pleading for us to be justified over and over and over again. But it's a plea for God's fatherly relationship with us to be restored. That's why I worded it that way. That fellowship to be restored. You see, our fellowship with our Father is disrupted daily by our daily sin. 
Our, let me say that again. Our fellowship with our Father is disrupted daily by our daily sin. And so we are to confess that sin and ask forgiveness of that sin so we can walk rightly with our Father. So we can walk rightly with our Papa. So that we can have open, clear fellowship with Him. And so we pray, forgive us our debts. Our Father will allow us, His children, if we are harboring sin, to be miserable. And our fellowship with him to be weak. And he does this in order to discipline us and cause us to see our sin and stir us up with a desire to see that fellowship restored. If you're harboring sin, God will make you miserable if you're his child. Not because he doesn't love you, but because he does love you. And he wants to see that fellowship restored, so he wants you to come and do this. Say, our Father, forgive us our debts. When I was a kid, I've told this story many times before, so you probably heard it. Uh, I don't remember how old I was. It's the watermelon story. I don't remember how old I was. But um, my parents had bought several watermelons on our back porch. And it was for some sort of get-together. There was like four or five of them there. And um, I thought it would be neat to see what would happen if you rolled watermelons down a flight of stairs. And so... I'm up on the porch, and I said, let's see what happens. And this is an old kind of metal staircase. And I I roll the first one off, boom, 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 I thought, that was cool. Let's see if the rest of them do the same thing. And sure enough, I rolled all four or five of those watermelons down, and they were all busted at the bottom of the stairs. And my mom comes out and says, what happened to the watermelons? And me, because I was so quick on my feet, I said, the wind did it. I was standing here and the wind just started blowing. And these things started going off one after another. And much to my surprise, my mom said, okay, well, I guess we'll have to go buy some more. And I'm thinking, all right, that worked. How clever am I? And for the rest of that day, I was miserable. I remember walking around the house and just being miserable. Now, I don't know if my mom played it up. She may have. Thing is, she knew. She knew that the wind in South Central Kentucky, we were not in Oklahoma. The wind in South Central Kentucky was not blowing hard enough to blow those heavy watermelons down that staircase. And I was miserable all day and just had my head hanging low. And and finally, I remember as clear as day, I was in our dining room, sitting at the table, just sitting there with my head down. There's nobody else in there. I'm by myself in a dark room with my head down. I said, Mom... And she said, yes. I said, I pushed the watermelons down the stairs. And she said, I know that. And I said, I'm sorry. And she said, I forgive you. But then she got on to me and she disciplined me for lying and dealt with that. You see, that's the child of God may commit a transgression and think he's clever enough to get away with it. But if he's truly a child of God, he will be miserable. And when he comes and confesses his debts, He isn't telling God anything God doesn't already know. He's telling God what God already knows so that his own fellowship with the Father can be restored. Father, forgive me of my debts. Thomas Watson said, Though a child of God after pardon may incur his fatherly displeasure, yet his judicial wrath is removed. The judicial wrath, in other words, has been dealt with. This is Thomas Watson continuing. Though he lay the rod, yet he has taken away the curse. Correction may befall the saints, 
but not destruction. So our sins are indeed forgiven and forgotten in the sense that they no longer bring down the wrath of a just judge, but not in the sense that they no longer bring down the painful spanking of a loving father. We need to remember that. Let me say that again. Our sins are forgiven and forgotten in the sense that they no longer bring down the wrath of a just judge. But not in the sense that they no longer bring down the painful spanking of a loving father. So when we pray this first part of the petition, this first clause, we are expressing our desire to have restored fellowship with our father through his pardoning of our sin. So in order to pray this petition, we must first of all see our sin more fully. Which is why I will remind you of the structure of this prayer. How does this prayer begin? Jesus begins by focusing our our hearts and our minds on the glory of God. I suggest that we must do that in order to see our sin more fully. When we fix our eyes on the glory of God, our sin comes into view. Under the light of his glory, the stains of our sin are revealed. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture. When eyes are open to the glory of God, sin is revealed in the heart of man. We see it in Isaiah chapter 6. You know the famous passage. As Isaiah sees this, the, the, he sees the throne room of heaven and he's blown away by it. What does he say in verse 5? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. He, he sees his sin in the light of the glory of God. Or Job, in Job chapter 42, verse 5, Job says this, after God has, has come and spoken to Job and shown him, uh, has shown Job how limited his own understanding of how things are, Job says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Over and over again, we can talk about Peter when, he, when Jesus does the miraculous catch. He does something similar. Over and over again, when people see the glory of God, their sin is revealed. So why does Jesus start the Lord's Prayer the way he does? Partially to help us see our sin. He focuses our minds on the glory of God. Seeing the glory of God leads us to see our sin. So this prayer starts off by, asking, by us asking God to make his name hallowed, glorified. We ask God for God's glorious reign, his kingdom to come. We're asking for God's glorious purposes, his will to be accomplished. All for him, all for his glory. Our eyes, our hearts, our minds focused like lasers on God's glory. Then and only then do we truly see our need, our physical need, bread, sustenance, but more importantly, our spiritual need, forgiveness of sin and restoration with our Father. When you come to God, first of all, with your laundry list of your, what, your physical needs, friends, if that's how you start your prayer, you're going to be blind to your deepest needs. You need restoration of that fellowship with your Father because you have sins you're not even aware of. You need it. I need it. So we start, we, we pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. Focusing our hearts and minds on God and his glory first and foremost. And so we must see our sin more fully and we must hate our sin more intensely. When God's glory is our passion, we hate our sin more and more and more because we see it as what it is, as an affront to his glory. And we saw that even when we read 1 John chapter 1 earlier. 
as John's talking about what they've seen and what they've witnessed. And then he comes to that part in verse 9 where he tells us to confess our sins because God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what John is calling on Christians to do there in verse 9 of, of uh, 1 John chapter 1, he is, he is calling on Christians not to ask for judicial forgiveness of sin from a judge in the sense of justification, but to ask for restorative forgiveness of sin from our Father in the sense of ongoing sanctification. So we ask forgiveness of our debts. And the Greek word forgive here, it means to send them away, to dismiss them. This word was also sometimes, sometimes translated divorce. Okay, It's to send them away, send our sins away, dismiss them. We want God to divorce us from our sin. We are asking for God to send it away, and so he does. Psalm 103, verse 12, gloriously, God says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah seven nineteen. You will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea, all our sins into the depths of the sea. And we desire this because we desire to fellowship with our Father. The fellowship with our Father is our deepest desire. Friends, if all you desire is a clean ledger, then your desires aren't deep enough. We desire fellowship. The clean ledger is simply the means to get to our greater desire, which is fellowship with our Father. So that's the first part of the petition. Restored fellowship with our Father through the forgiveness of sins. That's easy to understand. Nothing controversial there. We all get that. Hopefully we all seek that daily. Then we get to this tiny little word, as. That word, according to Augustine, turns this fifth petition into a terrible petition. Terrible in the sense that it's terrifying. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We need to know what as means. Little words like that are huge in the scriptures. This does not mean, the word as does not mean at the same time. Like like this, I was sleeping as the robbers were breaking into my house and stealing my stuff. That's not how Jesus is using the word here. So if you have a translation, and there is a translation that translates this verse like this. If you have a translation that says, forgive us our debts while we also forgive our debtors, that is a bad translation. Get a new translation. That is a bad translation of this Greek word because that's not what that word means in the Greek. That's not what this conjunction means. This conjunction is a comparative word. It is drawing a correlation. So again, we are not asking the Father to forgive our debts while we forgive others. But instead, we are asking our Father to forgive our debts like or in the same manner that we are forgiving others. That makes this petition a terrible petition. So when we add the second part of the petition, we see this. And here's the second part of your notes. In this fifth petition, we are to express our desire to have restored fellowship with our Father only to the degree that we are seeking restored fellowship with others. As Martin Luther concluded, this word as actually turns this petition into a contract. We are told to ask the Father, we are are told by Jesus... To ask the Father to limit our forgiveness to the level with which we are willing to forgive others. That, friends, is frightening. 
And I think Jesus knew we would bristle under this teaching. He knew that we, our sinful minds would think that surely Jesus is trying to say something else. And so because he knew we would react that way, he elaborates a little bit. And he gives us verses 14 through 15, which say this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wow. Do we pray like this? When you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, do you ask him only to do so to the degree that which you've, to which you've forgiven others? Do you pray like that? Jesus, forgive me of my sins, but only do it to the degree that I have forgiven other people. If you're not praying like that, you're not praying according to this model. Do you ask him to forgive your sins, but to do so only to the degree to which you have forgiven your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, your coworker, your boss, your neighbor, that sister in the church who's hurt you, that brother in the church who has disrespected you, that pastor who made a decision that you know was just wrong. Do you pray, Father, only forgive me to the degree that I have forgiven them? Or do you pray, God, deal with me the same way I deal with them? Or do you pray, Lord, that person who hurt me and harmed me, I just can't bring myself to let it go and forgive them. Do the same thing to me. Or do you pray, Father, since I haven't forgiven so-and-so, please don't forgive me. Do we understand the weight of what Jesus is saying in this petition? Do you see to pray this petition is actually to call a curse down upon yourself if you are unwilling to forgive others. You are asking God, the Father, not to forgive you if you don't forgive others. That's why Augustine said this is terrifying. And it is. Spurgeon put it this way. To pray the Lord's Prayer with an unforgiving spirit is to virtually sign your own death warrant. I like Spurgeon. I like to quote him, but I'm afraid to talk like that. And this isn't the only place that Jesus teaches this. You might be thinking, oh, Steve, you're just misinterpreting this this one passage here if you're saying these things. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, earlier in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. How about Matthew 11, 25? Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that, it's it's the condition, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Or Luke chapter 6, verse 37, judge not and you'll be not judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Or uh, the brother of our Lord, James, says this in James chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of mercy. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. This shows us how important God views our relationships with our fellow man. Especially within the church. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Relationships with our brothers and our neighbors is so important to our Father that Jesus says that our vertical fellowship with our Father depends on a, upon our horizontal fellowship with our brothers. 
That's how important it is to our, to our Father that we love one another. This is amazing. And don't forget what we've already seen in this sermon. Matthew chapter 5 verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I wonder how many people would have to stay away from church next Sunday if we were totally honest and true with these passages of scripture. Brothers, sisters, forgive one another and let us seek forgiveness if we have harmed one another. This was modeled so well for me this week. Three different times this week, one via email, a couple via call. I had people call me and simply say, hey, listen, I may have said something that offended you. And I want to I want to ask forgiveness if I did offend you in some sort of way. And, and, and what was so awesome about that was that this was being modeled this week. I love how the Lord sovereignly does those things. I, I'm sitting here working on the sermon to get a call. Boom. Okay, that's awesome. It was modeled. I love that. I want our whole church to be like that. If we think we've offended anybody, we go and we talk to them. And if someone's offended us, we go and we talk to them. And we seek forgiveness and reconciliation because we know our prayers are hindered if we don't do that. Do you realize that? We talk about wanting to be a praying church. We can't be a praying church while we have knives that we're ready to stab in each other's backs. So we pray and we seek forgiveness of our Father to the degree that we are willing to seek forgiveness from one another. Oh, how we must forgive. We must, as our Heavenly Father sends the debt away, He forgives, He sends it away. We need to do all that we can do to send away, to dismiss any disharmony among the brothers. But too often we, unlike God, we like to fish up the sins that have been cast into the depths of the sea. We, unlike God, okay, we, we say we bury the hatchet only to then go and buy the field where the hatchet is buried and make it our treasure. That's us. Usually our unwillingness to forgive sin is due to the fact that we don't see our sin fully. I said earlier, we got to see our sin. Usually we don't forgive when we don't see our sin fully. We're so apt to see others' faults and not our own. We don't truly understand our own debts. That's what Jesus shows us in Matthew chapter 18. Now this parable really, I mean, if you think you're still struggling out there, I'm not sure Jesus is teaching this. Hey, Matthew chapter 18 is the cleanup hitter. It knocks it out of the park. So let me read this parable to you. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then he tells this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And let me just say real quick, friends, King Jesus is coming back and he is going to settle accounts. There's no amnesty program for heaven. He's going to settle accounts. So the king came, he's going to settle accounts, and verse 24 says, And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now scholars, now there's some difference of opinion here, but scholars say that a talent is roughly 15 to 20 years worth of wages. So you can do the math, 10,000 times 20 years worth of wages comes to about $10 billion. So a, a servant was brought that owed $10 billion. 
That's a big debt. That's obviously an unpayable debt. When Jesus is here, has heard 10,000 talents, they probably went, oh my goodness, that's, that's ridiculous. So verse 25, it says, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that they had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him, and forgave him his debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now a denarii is about one day's wage. And he owed him a hundred. So we can, as a hundred days wages, you can do the math. It's a little over three months worth of pay. Maybe around 13,000 or so. Still not a small debt. But nothing compared to the first debt. And it says he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servants um, fell down and pleaded with him, have, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, now this is the terrifying part. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus says some tough things. Jesus is tougher than Spurgeon. You see, the first man didn't really know how indebted he was. Or at least he didn't care. Or else he wouldn't have gone and choked the man who owed him relatively a small amount of money. When we don't truly understand how awfully sinful we are, we fail to be in position to forgive the petty sins that are committed against us. And when you don't see the enormity of our debt, we are so quick to exaggerate the debts that are owed us. Oh, how we need to see our own sin. Oh, how we need to see and understand what we have been forgiven of if we are truly a Christian. And how we need to see how serious it is not to forgive the sins of others. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this. He said, we who are children of God, subjects of the king, flock of the shepherd, cannot be forgiven unless we forgive. For our refusal to forgive is the deepest and worst of all sins. Remember that the context of Matthew chapter 6... Jesus is dealing with hypocrisy. So what G. Campbell Morgan is saying here, what Jesus is teaching here, is that we are hypocrites if we, if we ask God to forgive our sin while harboring sin, harboring unforgiveness against another. Therefore, we nullify the initial request. For an unforgiving spirit is sin. For the only sins that we can be forgiven of are the ones we turn from, repent of, and thus we cannot expect forgiveness. We cannot expect restored fellowship with our Father when we are harboring the sin of resentment and the sin of an unforgiving spirit against another. So we're not truly asking God to forgive us our debts anyway. Because we're harboring sin. Friends, our spiritual health is at stake. Our joy is at stake. Our sanctification is at stake. And if we go on sinning stubbornly, holding on to an unforgiving spirit, saying, I will not forgive, I do not want to forgive, I will never forgive, then friend, I dare say your salvation is in doubt. For Matthew 18 seems to teach that the unforgiving servant turned out to be unsaved. 
So one of the evidences of a person who has truly been redeemed, who has truly been forgiven of his or her sin, is that he or she now, by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, has the desire and the ability to forgive others. You will not go to heaven if you are an unforgiving person, not because your unwillingness to forgive earns anything, or your willingness to forgive earns anything, for we're saved by grace alone, but because an unforgiving spirit is incompatible with a person who has been made new. If you're a person who has been made new, then unforgiveness is incompatible with that. The old saying is true, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Yes, to forgive means that we have the evidence of the divine nature in us when we're a forgiving person. For we have been united to Christ by faith and we look like our Father who is a forgiving Father. That's one of the great themes of this Sermon on the Mount, that we kingdom citizens are to look like our Father. We are to be forgiving as our Heavenly Father is forgiving. That's why hypocrisy is so abominable to God. Because hypocrites claim to be children of God while they look like children of Satan. To err is human and to forgive is divine. Well, then to not forgive is demonic. So in conclusion this morning, friend, where are you this morning? I dare say there is unforgiveness being harbored in this room here this morning. Perhaps between parent and child, between husband and wife, between brother and sister, brother and sister in Christ perhaps, between you and people outside of this body. God is calling you, calling all of us to a deeper fellowship with him this morning. But in order to enjoy that deeper fellowship, we must repent of all of our sins, including the sin of not forgiving others. Friends, ask God this morning to give you a spirit of forgiveness. And if you truly are his child, he will honor that prayer request. He will give you a spirit of forgiveness. In our flesh... We will fail at this over and over again, but Christ has accomplished what we could not. If we are united to him, the glorious truth is that he has accomplished what we could not not do. He he was sinned against over and over again, in, in infinitely greater ways than we're being sinned against. And when the ultimate sin was committed against him and he was brutally nailed to the cross, he said in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, believer, you are united to Christ and his perfect obedience, his perfect spirit of forgiveness has been credited to your account. But you are called to walk in increasing likeness to him, thus showing that you you are indeed united to him and that his spirit dwells in you. So you must fight the sin of unforgiveness. You have to fight it. If you don't fight it, you may not be a child. It's that serious. And those are Jesus's words, friends. It's that serious. You must fight it by the power of the Spirit and with the Word of God. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So so we're called to action. Put on. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body. Healthy Christians fight hard to forgive others. That's my conclusion this morning. Healthy Christians fight hard to forgive others. So let go of whatever it is 
Your father has a hold of you. He has forgiven you of your debts. But don't start reaching for that holy grail of unforgiveness. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ, friend, you need justification. You need the forgiveness that makes you right with God. You cannot have a restored walk with God or a restored fellowship with God because you are an enemy of God. So I urge you to repent of your sin, turn from your sin, ask God to forgive you, trust in Christ who shed his blood on the cross to forgive sin once for all and to give you his righteousness. Believe in him and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would forgive us our debts. And our debts are so bad. I mean, Lord, if you could somehow open up our eyes, peel back the scales of our blindness to our sin, I think we'd be shocked. It'd be be like pulling up an old piece of wood in the yard and finding just hordes of roaches underneath it. We don't see it. We still struggle with sin so bad that we don't see most of our sin. So, Father, our first request this morning is that you would be hallowed, you'd be glorified in everything we do, whether we eat, drink, whatever we do, that we do it for your glory. And, Lord, as you are glorified, we ask that you would reveal to us the stains, the sins, so that we can turn from them. And we ask you to forgive us those debts. Father, if we could just see our sin, oh, how we would be broken right now, falling on the floor, begging you to forgive us of those sins. So that our relationship can be stronger with you. But Father, how often, and I'm asking this question for myself, how often do we only ask that to the degree that we're willing to forgive others? So Father, we, we pray this morning that we would, that you'd forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a, a forgiving spirit. Help us to forgive those who come and ask for forgiveness. Help us to be willing to forgive those, even those who haven't asked for forgiveness. So God, we ask that you would do this work in our heart. Help us to understand we cannot have proper confession if we're bearing grudges. So Lord, my prayer for this church right here is, as I'm going to be here another week before I head out for two months. Lord, my prayer is that if there's any grudges, any unforgiveness being harbored in this body, Lord, that you would send those sins away, that we'd be divorced from that. Lord, divorce us from our unforgiveness. And Lord, only you can do this. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in each one of our hearts, mine included. If there be any, any person we need to go and ask forgiveness from this week, that we would do it. If there's any person we need to go and tell them we forgive them this week, that we would do it. That we wouldn't put it off. Because the longer we put off our sin, the quicker that roach will crawl underneath that board once again. So Father, we ask that you do this in our hearts. Make us obedient to Jesus. Jesus commanded this prayer. This isn't optional. Jesus commanded this model, this pattern of prayer. So, Father, make us obedient to the Son. Jesus, thank you for perfectly obeying for us. We are justified. We are counted as righteous because of what you already have already done. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you are making us more like who we already are. So, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts this week. We ask this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.